Welcome to the inner world of filmmaking. I'm your host, Tammy McGarrow. I'm a writer, director, editor, and a podcast producer. In this show, I will interview filmmakers in all facets of production and distribution. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Wendy Borman. She is the executive producer and director of Mary Jane's The Women of Weed, which featured Grammy Award winner Melissa Etheridge. Some of her successes includes 10-time award-winning documentary, The Eyes of Thailand, and the big picture, Rethinking Dyslexia, which premiered at Sundance and on HBO. Welcome, Wendy. So honored to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, let's start with wow, okay? All the things that you are involved in turns to gold. And the stars you get attached to your films. So I've always been curious, how do you go about getting someone like Ashley Judd, who narrated your film, The Eyes of Thailand? I mean, do you reach out to their agent or manager or do you have personal connections? Um, It's a little of both. And, you know, I've worked with high profile people on a number of films and each one has been a little bit different. So in the case of Ashley Judd, we did not know whether that film needed a narrator until we got closer to the picture lock stage. So I initially did not conceptualize it as needing a narrator. I was thinking, well, we're already dealing with people speaking in Thai with subtitles in English. So maybe we just try to cover the gaps with text on the screen. The film opens with this beautiful story about the Buddha being born as an elephant as a way to get a Western audience to understand the spiritual connection of elephants in the culture. And so once we decided to open with that, we knew we needed a narrator. So we made a wish list. We sent out query letters to a number of women who I thought could do a great job. And the schedule lined up with Ashley Judd. And so... She was based in Nashville at the time. So I flew out and we went to the recording studio where she does a lot of work and, you know, got her favorite technicians and made it really easy for her to just roll up, do the recording for an hour, and she took off. In the case of Melissa Etheridge, who is actually has a sit-down interview in the film Mary Jane's The Women of Weed, We knew we wanted her to appear in the film, and it was honestly like 10 months of communication with her publicist. So if possible, I try to go through either the publicist or the manager as opposed to the agent, because the agent wants the most money. The manager wants a feel-good career boost for the talent, and the publicist wants you know, something that they can say, this is great PR, let's do it. So for my cause-oriented documentaries, I, I find trying to go through either the, the manager or the publicist for a sit-down interview it has been easiest. And it just took us 10 months for our schedules to line up. So she was actually the last interview we filmed. And then we brought the footage back and dropped it into the section that we were kind of saving for her in the film. And that relationship was positive enough that we were also able to license two of her songs to appear in the film. And when you get stars like that, do you typically have to pay them to be in or just depends? So it depends. I don't pay them for their time to do an interview, right? So I ended up paying Sony because (laughs) they had the master license on the songs that we wanted, right? So it was indirectly they got paid, but I'm not paying somebody to 
appear in the film just because, you know, I have a journalism background that just doesn't feel right to me. I'm not paying anybody else. So I didn't want to pay talent. And that was understood uh, going in with Melissa. For Ashley Judd, we had a separate deal to pay her SAG minimums. And then we offered her equity. And that was just negotiated. If the film made X amount of money, she would get Y amount of it. And if it made it Z amount of money, she would get, you know, a different amount of money. I have found it helps to use different websites to figure out the which celebrities care about which causes and then use that to create my wish list to invite the people to appear. I find that that decreases the costs all around and, you know, it ends up being a win-win for everybody. They're excited to appear in the film. We're excited to have them, you know, and their team is happy to help promote it. So that helps us in our distribution and our marketing. Yeah. I like that approach. So talking about Mary Jane's, so you moved to Colorado where marijuana was legalized back in 2012. Talk me through your process from idea to what was ultimately the film itself, Mary Jane's The Women of Weed, which was completed in 2017. Yeah, I moved to Colorado actually in 2014. So this was the two years after the voters had legalized adult use of cannabis. And so that was just when the regulations were starting to come into play. And we started seeing data, how much you know tax revenue was com- coming to the state, what this, the sales were, and also the number of entrepreneurs. So I got really excited when I heard a statistic in 2015 that 36% of senior leadership in the cannabis industry was women. And that was the highest amount of gender parity in any industry. So, you know, my spidey senses as a filmmaker kind of lit up and I was like, ooh, there's something here. So I pre-interviewed over 100 people over the phone to just try to wrap my head around cannabis because I was not a consumer. I'd never tried it before. So I was really coming from this gender parity lens. And I realized that cannabis was ultimately the intersection of gender parity but social justice and environmental sustainability. So once I had those three core values, they appear in my other films. So I knew I had an access point and I had a very clear idea for who I wanted to appear in the film. And there was a lot, you know, we ended up with 40 women from 10 different states. And that's a big lift for an audience to try to keep track of all of that. So it really just came down to trying to figure out how to organize the story so the audience could go on this journey and I could make the call to action clear to them at the end. We had originally conceptualized it while we were filming in 2016 that, you know, we were going to follow California and Massachusetts because they both were voting whether to legalize adult use of cannabis in their states that fall. And we thought, hey, wouldn't it be great if the film ends with the first female president of the United States and we've got this girl power movie, right? (laughs) Election night, I had two film crews in two different states and everyone went, yay, cannabis. 
oh my God, the country's falling off a cliff. <laughs> and people were crying. And I was like, right. I can't end the movie like this. <laughs> like, this is a real downer. So yeah. <laughs> we took all the footage back and, you know, did a couple different versions in the edit just to see how we could use what we already had. And then working with my editor, we realized that, okay, this film actually needs an on-camera narrator. They need somebody taking the audience and literally connecting the dots for people. You know, we tried it with text on the screen. We tried it with me just recording some scratch track narration to see if, you know, whether it was me or somebody else could do that. And the audience wasn't understanding what I was saying. Like, even if I showed them the words and they heard the words, they needed somebody on camera to say, and this connects to this for that aha moment. So we realized that I should be the on-camera narrator. And that was a first for me. I had not appeared in the other documentaries. And for the story, I needed to insert myself and my journey to understand cannabis, looking at the addiction in my family, as well as that just say no, dare generation propaganda. And then the payoff is... Wendy tries cannabis for the first time ever and puts it at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we that's the journey we take the audience on. And ultimately, that's the version of the story that worked the best. And, you know, it resonated with audience. We got distribution deals. We won festival awards. And so just that trial and error of test audiences and getting feedback really helped us get something special. Yeah, I thought it was a, it was a great film. It was a great film. And I thought you being in it, I mean, I didn't know it other than that, but I thought that that personal touch and then um, your journey and how you even came up with the three tiers, I thought was just really amazing. So I'm glad you were in it because you really kind of explained and it was kind of like we were going through it with you trying to understand, it, even though you filmed that after, <laughs> but it felt like we were, that's what I was just going to ask like, Oh, so, but, but you, you were filming it. Um, weren't you filming it before as you were figuring it all out? And then it's like, no, <laughs> but that was great. I thought it, it was great and edited. Oh, Greg Stopher. He is amazing. He really put that, the footage, uh, the extra footage together with the film. It just, just was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I was really happy to work with him. I, you know, I kind of tease him a little bit. He's bald and comfortably bald, but I tease him that, you know, if he had any hair, he would have pulled it all out <laughs> in some of the some of those editing sessions, just because it was like, nope, we need to pull it all apart, flip it around, put it together. But he and I had a good rapport. And a lot of the conversations that we'd had on the front end just about why or how we wanted to tell the story and just understanding the social impact and the social responsibility helped us set the tone for how we put things together. And I think a lot of that was sorted out because he edited our fundraising trailers. So he got to see the early interviews, you know, where we were a couple months into filming, where we knew we needed to do a crowdfunding campaign to kind of get us over the next hump, you know, and he helped us tell that story. And so he was getting used to the footage. He was getting used to the characters, you know, who we thought made the point the best, you know, which person had the best soundbite. And we had really frank conversations just about 
what things we show and what things we don't show. Part of the social responsibility is just understanding the female gaze versus the male gaze when you look at film. So if you see how women have been portrayed who've used cannabis in other films, like Dazed and Confused, Pineapple Express, like any of these other things, you know, they either say nothing or there's a lot of sexualizing, sensationalizing, you know, the slow motion exhales or like these, um, even the cannabis plant is kind of like ogled and sexualized and how the camera creates these S curves over it. And we didn't want any of that. I was really clear that I was like, these are professional women who've made a very smart decision to come into this industry. So this is not putting wrestling in bikinis. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, let's get, you know, people stoned and see see what happens. We save that for the very end of the film. And, you know, at that point, our team was really comfortable with, okay, this is how we film things. So it was, it was a lot of... And, intentionality behind what we showed and also just camera angles, you know, where we put the camera from there, Greg, our editor was able to put things together in such a way that, you know, it, I think is a celebration of women and of cannabis and plant medicine, as opposed to anything that's really sensationalizing or exploitive. Yeah, it's funny that you should bring that up with women in film smoking pot. You know, when you name those two movies, I was thinking, huh, there was women in there smoking pot? Because it's usually just men that you see all the time. I thought you did a great job. Thank you. Yeah, I I mean, the other thing we talked about a lot was the Bechdel test and understanding, okay, we need to have, you know, women speaking to each other um, who have names and they're speaking to each other about mm-hmm. something other than a man. Like that's how you pass the Bechdel test, right? And you think about something like Dazed and Confused and the drug dealer's girlfriend, beautiful. She has no lines. All she does is smoke and sit there stoned and pretty. And it's like, yeah, that's not what we're doing. Right. Different kind of movie. Yeah. And I liked at the end when you all were, you know, smoking pot, but it was like a women's group. It was just really cool. Like kind of, it was celebratory because that's the feeling I was thinking you were going for. Yeah. And and we were really um, intentional about how we put that scene together. You know, I had spoken to a bunch of people about their first experiences trying cannabis. And for several people, it was, you know... Something that was passed to them at a party in high school, they didn't really know what it was, or there was a lot of peer pressure involved, or the dudes bought it, and the dudes tried it, you know, and the women weren't even involved in the conversation around it. So I wanted to flip that script and make something really empowering and educational at the same time. So I went to a dispensary who was owned by a woman and a, a woman of color who has a social justice component to their business. I spoke to a female bud tender, the person behind the counter, who talked me through and uh, what I was looking for. I described the experience I wanted to have. She steered me in the direction of try this, this amount, do a baby puff, don't do a big, you know, rip off of something. Right. If you're going to try an edible, you know, here's the things to keep in mind. Um, So the audience was learning with me while I was going through that experience. And then when we tried it, yeah, we wanted it to be this beautiful 
celebration of women. And, you know, I call them my cannabis fairy godmothers and they created this safe space for me and we tried it together and it just seems really joyful. And I, I think that was such a nice change to be able to do a film that focuses on opportunity and not oppression for women. Yes. And also, um, just as you were saying about um, edibles, you know, that's really dangerous. I'm glad that you had that because people don't realize that if you take too many, you could end up in the hospital. So I'm glad that you kind of walked us through. And probably it was really great that you hadn't smoked pot before because then we could be educated as you're being educated. So well done. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And, and <laughs> it's been really nice to hear how the cannabis industry has responded to the film as well. There's some people who don't get it, you know, because it's a different kind of movie than they're they're expecting when you say it's women and weed, right? They think <laughs> jello wrestling. Um, right. <laughs> but for the people who see it, they've been really grateful and, you know, express that gratitude of thank you for doing this work. Thank you for putting yourself, you know, in the film and educating the audience. So, Hopefully, consumers come in a little bit more enlightened um, when they're ready to buy something and they don't have to, like, start <laughs> at ground zero. You know, watch right. the Mary Jane's film. That's like Cannabis 101. And then come talk to us. Right. Yeah. Well, and also, thank God that you took the time to make the film right than to just go, okay, well, we'll just put it out there, you know? That you stopped, restructured, which, you know, obviously that could be a headache and a half for everybody, but that you did it right. And then to have to go back and film yourself into the, into the film itself. Thank God you did that because I don't know that it would have gotten the accolades that it did, as you said. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's oddly one of the benefits of independent films. If you haven't sold it yet before you release it, you in some ways, have the luxury of time. You can rework it until you feel like it's right. And then, you know, you put it out and say, okay, I think it's ready now. Whereas we've heard of even big blockbuster films that it's like, well, we've got the holiday release deadline for the big comic book movie. So, you know, at some point, you know, the train leaves the station and we know it'll make some money, but it may not make everybody happy. We use that to our experience. And I think that's, you know, the other benefit is I developed the story. So I'm the executive producer, the writer, and the director. And so at the end of the day, I get the final cut. And so, yes, I have all of the risk associated with that. Right. But I get to control more of the storytelling. It's not filmmaking by committee necessarily. Yeah, I get to be the boss. And how many women get to do that? And how often do we get to do that as women in our lives? You know, like, I just think about my day and it's like, you know, I'm usually pretty accommodating to other people or I try to come from a place of kindness. And that's true in my filmmaking, too. But in my films, I get to be like, no, no, we don't have it yet. <laughs> We're not moving on. One more take. One more take. One more take. Right. Yes. And that's that's the best part about being a director and writer and producer is that you get to uh, say, nope, it's my cut. <laughs> so how long did it take you to finish the film from start to finish? This was actually really fast in the filming. So it was um, 18 months from our first film shoot until our festival premiere. We had 
one year on the festival circuit and we followed the distribution model of, you know, get your educational distributor confirmed first and then you get your um, digital distributor lined up. And then, you know, we got caught up in pandemic and companies going bankrupt because they were over leveraged and having to get our rights back and then, you know, piecing it all together. So we really got um, slowed down. Fortunately, from a storytelling perspective, cannabis is still relevant. You know, we didn't magically fix gender parity and social justice and climate change, you know, in the last couple of years. So the film was still relevant, but it's kind of interesting. In some ways, it's a bit of a time capsule. Like, you know, these were the states. Um, these were the people who were the leaders at the time. Not all of them made it through the green rush. You know, there are several women in the film who've gone on to do other things. Um, and yet the themes that we're talking about are still important. So the film still resonates now. And how do people see the film? Where can they go? So we are available on Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Vudu, Vimeo. If you have a library card, you can stream it at your library through Canopy. And we also have some limited edition DVDs available on our website. All right. And what's the website? MaryJanesFilm.com. Great. So I'm always curious about budget. <laughs> so if you don't mind sharing, what was the budget for the film? Yeah. So I get, as a the producer, I have the luxury of writing the budget. You always have your wish list budget. And then you have your, I think I can make it for this budget. And then you have your bare bones budget, right? We have a $600,000 budget for Mary Jane's. And luckily through grants and donations and crowdfunding campaigns and equity partners and, you know, also um, sharing equity with people in the crew, we were able to make it for less than that. Oh, that's great. What does one have to consider in budgeting that the filmmaker may not be thinking of, but needs to be considered like music, travel, gas fees? Like, is there any tips you could give somebody in budgets for a documentary that they need to think about? There's a couple areas that I think trip up first time or n newer filmmakers. The first is film festival is not a distribution line item. It's marketing. So you are not going to make any money going to film festivals. You might sell your film there if you're lucky, but you're not going to like bring a check home and be able to cover your distribution costs with it. Right. So you're going to spend money getting to festivals, submitting to festivals, all the things associated with trying to promote your film at a festival, publicists, posters, postcards, all these other things, right? My suggestion for marketing, have that be one third of your budget. And it feels like a lot, but honestly, that is the, the biggest chunk that eats up my costs, the three films. So that's the ratio that I keep. The other thing that specifically in terms of music is there are two different licenses that you need. There's the master license and a sync license. So each of those can be several thousand dollars. Um, so depending on how many songs you have, you, you might have the cost times two. Um, the other thing related to music where you can save some money, though, which in our case, Melissa Etheridge played two of her songs at a rehearsal before a concert. So because she 
played them live for us, and it was not a, a performance event. We did not have to pay any of the musicians or the space, you know, to record there. And we were able to just get the master license. We did not need the sync license. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between master and sync for people that don't know? Bare bones, it's the people that write the songs and then it's the people that hold the recording. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we did not need the recording from somebody. We just needed to pay Melissa's through Sony and BGM because that's where her deal is. We just needed to pay them for licensing the master of the song. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she she played it. And luckily, she was one, you know, singer-songwriter. I had to work on other songs where there's, you know, three, five. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they all have to agree at the same time to the same amount of money. The other thing involved with music is there's something called Most Favored Nations. Sometimes that's abbreviated. So it's an acronym. But basically, it's, it's saying nobody gets paid any more than anybody else. Right. Which is great if you have people at the same level of their career or the same amount of popularity. It gets really tricky when you want to have like an indie song as your end credits, but you want to have a big name playing something live. And, you know, in that situation, I just had really frank conversations with people and said, you know, I love you. And unfortunately, I can't pay you what I'm paying Sony. (laughs) For this song. Here's what I can do instead. They were friendly. You know, I've worked with them before. They they were happy with whatever I offered them and they felt that that was fair. But part of it's just having the conversation and being really frank saying, hey, this is our budget. I'd love your song, but this is as much as I can offer you. The last thing about music, and this is a mistake that I made and I'll never do it again, is have the same sound mix for all your distribution. So, and buy the license, you know, a full buyout of the songs at the beginning. So I had a film festival budget. So we had, you know, songs by Willie Nelson and, you know, and Melissa Etheridge and, you know, um, Casey Musgraves and like all these people. And it was really great for our festival. And then I could not afford everybody's fees because I needed the master and the sync on those other songs, I could not afford to keep them in the film for our educational distributor or, you know, our worldwide distribution on like Vimeo and things like that. I just knew I wasn't going to get the sales to justify the expense. So I had to do a separate audio mix. And then when you're delivering the film during a pandemic and your hard drives get lost and you're trying to upload things, you know, right overnight through WeTransfer, not everybody checks that it's the best, you know, the most recent sound mix going out with the picture sync and the, I have to like throw the emergency break and like, you know, switch it out and sync it back up and send it again. And yeah, that was way too many gray hairs. (laughs) On that, on that experience. So I'll just have this the same sound mix moving forward. I won't make that mistake again. So what you're saying is, is that what you took to the festivals with Willie Nelson and the others, some of those had to be taken out and then a different song put in for the rest of the distribution. Wow. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. So, And then you have to find another song. Exactly. 
Right. And do you do um, art list? Like, do you go there to get the music or do you always like to do original pieces or mix? It's been different on each of the films. So for The Eyes of Thailand, we had a composer okay. compose everything. And that was really wonderful because I was able to just talk about mood or pacing or, you know, whether we wanted something ethnic that kind of felt, you know, Asian inspired and something more Western. You know, we were able to talk about those sorts of things with The Eyes of Thailand. We also had a composer on the big picture. And that so that, that was a great experience. And then with Mary Jane's, we did not license, or excuse me, we did not compose anything. Everything was licensed. Mm-hmm. So we went to th- places like Premium Beats, mm-hmm. um, yeah. where I just got to search libraries, you know, and really find things based on genre and beats per minute. And we used something for the editor, Greg, to kind of give him some pacing to time some of the cuts after the festival circuit, when we needed to switch out the songs, I knew the beats per minute on these songs. And so I was able to just swap it out for something else. I also had the relationship with the composer from the eyes of Thailand. So, you know, I just made a friendly phone call to them to say, Hey, I don't need anything custom. What do you already have in your library? That's this many beats per minute and sounds like this, you know, and I sent them the Willie Nelson song as a comp and he's like, Oh, Try these two songs. And I was like, great, this one works. Great, send me money for that. And it was just a simple licensing deal. Yeah. I didn't even think about the composer. That's right. (laughs) That's a big one. (laughs) So thanks for bringing that up. Um, And then what about extra footage for the film? Um, How do you decide what you need and how do you go about getting it? And is that the editor's job, the director's job? Whose job is it to get the supporting footage? Yeah. So what you're talking about is, you know, something we call B-roll because mm-hmm. your interviews, that that's your A-roll. You know, you're, you're basically making your story off of your interview sound bites, and then you're filling in the gaps with this other B-roll. So some of that is action shots of the person doing the thing they just talked about in the interview, right? So we would just map out a list of the B-roll shots that we needed to get with you know, if we're interviewing a scientist, we need her in a lab coat, having a pipette, doing something sciency. you know? Right. <laughs> or we need a machine arm picking something up and dropping it the, on the other side of the frame. So we would kind of map that out ahead of time and put that into our shooting schedule for the day. Right. In terms of other things like archival footage, you need to think about what exactly you need and whether you want video or a still image, because yep. if your editor knows what they're doing, like ours did, you can do really cool things with still images, right? With mm-hmm. things kind of moving around. And then the other the other type of B-roll is animation, which we also used. So if we needed to like tell a story and we knew, like, for example, the timeline of legalization of cannabis in the United States. So there's great archival footage that we could have used and you do a quick budgeting through Getty images and all these other things. And you're like, whoa, it's going to be actually a lot cheaper if we have an animator (laughs) and maybe they're a new student that needs a a senior thesis project, you know, so that they're excited about a little bit of money and a screen credit. They can do it for you. We used animation for both 
actually all three of the films, The Eyes of Thailand, The Big Picture, and Mary Jane's, we used still images and we use video images as archival stuff. So most recently with Mary Jane's, our co-producer, Tammy Botkin. Yeah, she did some archival research for me. We had a very specific list of like, okay, we need a bottle of pills tipping over and, you know, the pills kind of spilling out in slow motion. And we knew we filmed in 4K, so we wanted to license the footage in 4K, right? So she would look for things like that. Or we needed a still image, you know, of a veteran hugging their family, you know, when we were talking about veterans with PTSD. So she did some of that work. I directed the animator. I worked I worked with them on that. Um, and then ultimately, you know, it was the three of us trying to find the best shot to drop into these specific areas. And most of the time, you really find out what you need when you're building your rough cut in the edit. Just going, oh, you know, we've got a jump cut to make this sentence work because they sneezed in the middle. Right. You know, so, yeah, <laughs> so how are we going to cover that, right? And you just kind of start making your wish list of like, okay, they're talking about this. Let's see if we can find something to fill in that gap for us. Yeah. And sometimes you just keep the jump cut. Other benefit for us is I film with two cameras. So, and you film in 4K. So you have a wider shot. You have something that's kind of like a three-quarter profile. And because it's 4K, you can punch in a little bit too on any of those. So you can end up with three to four different looks just on the interview footage. And it makes your lift a little easier to come up with the other B-roll that you need. Because that's the other thing that really can get expensive, especially with there's only one person that has the perfect shot, they can really charge whatever they want for it, right? Right. Um, And so I try not to get too attached to anything that I I really want just so I don't end up overpaying for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a lot of different uh, ways to go about it, like you said. Um, So what were some of the surprises that happened during filming? Well, I think the Biggest surprise in filming Mary Jane's was we thought we had an ending and then we didn't. You know, we thought <laughs> we had this girl power story that we were building towards and then you went, whoa, okay, uh, back to the drawing board. How can we make this work? Oh, and then I have to put myself in it too. <laughs> yeah. Then then the, oh, crap, n- you know, quick, I better write some, you know, voiceover for myself and figure out how I can, you know get in front of the camera without a, you know, a location release in a certain neighborhood, you know, just very quickly. So that was some surprises. The surprise for the eyes of Thailand was I didn't necessarily think I would need to go to Thailand to film on three different trips for that documentary. I had stumbled into the elephant hospital on my first trip and I had a camera and so I filmed. And then I told the founder of the Elephant Hospital, I was like, I will come back. She said she wanted to build prosthetics to help these two elephant landmine survivors walk again. And I said, if you can do it, I'll come back. She gave me like two weeks notice. (laughs) They were like, they're coming to build the legs. (laughs) So I had to buy a ticket to Thailand in two weeks. And so that was a surprise on on that film. Um, I also thought I had an ending at that point of that trip. And then, you know, a year later, two more elephants stepped on a landmine. And I was like, okay, there's an epilogue here. We didn't solve the problem. You know, we we really need a, a larger call to action to 
get the United States to sign the mine ban treaty because we hadn't signed it yet. So I went back a third time to film the two new elephants who'd stepped on the landmines. And then I jumped across the border to Laos to film some people who were at the International Mine Ban Treaty Convention. And by doing that, that actually opened the door for the film when it was complete to film at the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland when it was done. Wow. So that was a kind of nice surprise, but in in each case, expensive surprises, but from a storytelling perspective, we've made it work. Yeah. And glad that you had the opportunity that you could do it. Yeah. Instead of, oh, I can't. (laughs) Yeah. Very fortunate for that. And, you know, that's the other thing. that gets reinforced a lot as an independent filmmaker is, you know, your community and how we support each other is just so important. You know, it, it's kind of funny when when you think about it in terms of crowdfunding. It's like, I think that same $100 that like I donated to their project has gone to like this, <laughs> you know, like a game of telephone, you know, because we all end up supporting each other or we discount rates for each other, you know, like, sure, you can use my camera, it's not working today, or yeah, I can run sound for you, or you, and also just referrals to people of like, oh, yeah, I actually know somebody who could help you with that, introducing people, you know, so the community of filmmaking, it's just so important, and so, so valuable. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, So do you have any words of wisdom to budding documentary filmmakers? My Biggest advice is find something that you really are passionate about because the average length for a documentary is five to seven years from idea to distribution. And that's been my case in everything except the dyslexia film that kind of had a Cinderella story. You know, it, we shot it over the course of the year. It got into Sundance. HBO bought it before it was at Sundance and, you know, it was out the door. But for the other films, you know, even if we filmed it quickly, in the case of Mary Jane's, we didn't know a pandemic was going to slow us down for close to two years, you know, like all things like that. Make sure that whatever you're trying to document, you're passionate enough about it that you're willing to spend five to seven years of your life talking about the same story. And that's not to say you can't have other things. And honestly, like, My documentaries are like my sole projects, and then I have bank account projects, right, that I take those funds and I reinvest that back into the film. I need to talk about cannabis five years. I needed to talk about elephants in Thailand seven years. That sometimes surprises people. So uh, I'll give that little tip for people. Yeah. And what are you working on now? You know, I am trying to create the space to get re-inspired. There's a couple of things that I notice like keep hitting my radar that I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but I don't quite know what the story is yet. So a a lot of what I'm doing is trying to read as much as possible. I'm listening to podcasts, you know, I'm networking, going to events now that the world is opening up again to just kind of hear what other people are working on and just trying to get really clear on, okay, I've done stories about a variety of things, but I'm pretty solid on my core values. So what's the next story that features these core, these core values? And I'm not convinced it has to be a documentary. You know, I, I like being in both worlds, narrative and nonfiction. So hmm. it, it could be anything. It could be a series. You know, I, I might option something. I, I don't really know. So it, it's kind of 
just trying to create the the space to play um, and be creative. But I have another film in me. I, I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> and, you know, it's what am I willing to spend the next seven years of my life doing? I, it, it hasn't been that important yet where I'm like, ah, I have to tell this story. Right. Yeah. Well, good luck with whatever you end up doing. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to get out there and make a film. Reach out to your local filmmakers group to get involved and connect. Please subscribe to the show if you like it. And follow me on Instagram at Tammy Magaro. Until we meet again, what's your story? <laughs>